Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Writers like me want to believe that our wisdom is what people buy newspapers for. In fact, many pay their money just for the crossword and others for arguably the best written and most extraordinary section of the paper, obits, the obituaries. The Times has been in the obits business since the 19th century. Florence Nightingale had a Times obituary, and so, many years later, did Nelson Mandela. 2021 saw pieces written about the lives of Prince Philip, Shirley Williams, Stephen Sondheim, Mary Wilson and Colin Powell but there have also been obituaries of people who may not be household names, but whose stories are no less extraordinary. Her legacy eventually uh, will be elevated in the annals of American history. The iambic pentameter seemed to be the first language of Perry Pontac. If she fell into the Glasgow Clyde, she'd resurface with a thumb in each pocket. Talking about Tiramisu in Treviso is like talking about Maradona in Naples. You, you can joke about that. Giving voice to people whose voices we never hear was her primary urge. Today on Stories of Our Times, A Life Well Lived, Deputy Obituaries Editor Anna Temkin introduces us to some people she thinks we should know. When I tell people what I do for a living, often they say, Anna, isn't that quite gloomy? In fact, I tell them it's entirely the opposite. Obituaries are celebrations of life. They're short, elegantly written biographies, which, through anecdotes and illuminating personal details, should leave the reader with a genuine sense of what that person was like. What made them tick? What drove them? What were their habits, hobbies and quirks? The art of the skilled obituarist is to bring the dead to life. Initially, the Times just printed short death notices, along with birth and marriage announcements. But that changed when John Thaddeus Delane became editor in 1841. He realised the Victorian readership wanted more information on the prominent figures of the day and that their deaths merited more than a few sentences. Over time, the remit broadened to include not just famous faces, but people who have made an important or interesting contribution to society. I wanted to focus on some of them today, with the help of the Life and Times feature on Mariella Frostrup's Times radio programme, and a few of our obituary writers, whose names you won't see in the paper.
A perfect example of an inspirational person who you may not have heard of, but whose life we chose to record in the Times, is Evelyn McNichol, who combined a career in medicine with a passion for adventure and extreme sports. In 1955, while conducting a GP surgery, she answered a phone call asking her to join the first women-only expedition to the Himalayas. She didn't hesitate to say yes, then turned back to her patient. A strong swimmer and skier, she kept active well into later life, even taking up scuba diving in her 70s. When she died in April, Tim Bullimore worked on an obituary using the memoir Evelyn co-wrote with her granddaughter, Tove MacArthur, for research. They both joined Mariella. She was fiercely driven and stubborn, but also a very deeply compassionate and warm person. I've asked her before about highlights and favourite moments, but she said she just she couldn't answer that. She said it was just continuous from the moment they arrived in India. It was just all great. Tim Evelyn was, was working a shift as a, as a GP, I think, when she received a significant call from her friend. What did she ask? In 1952, Evelyn took um, a phone call from her friend Betty Stark. She was apparently working a shift in a GP surgery in Paisley near Glasgow. Do you fancy going to the Himalayas with Monica Jackson and myself? Um, <laughs> And she replied her fairly matter-of-factly, I think, yes, but I'm in the middle of surgery right now. I'll call you later. <laughs> um, and she did, thank goodness. What, what about the sort of more public response to the trip? Did anyone object to their plans at the time? Did it gain much media attention? Nepal had only opened to the West in 1950, and you need lots of permissions. The Alpine Club, the Royal Geographic Society, Nepalese government. And there's one rather sniffy doubter who said they may be first-class climbers, but this was no guarantee they could cope with a drunken Sherpa, said one <laughs> doubter, rather stereotyping them. But they were careful to avoid premature publicity. Um, I think it was um, Monica Jackson who wrote, we knew, should we come to grief, we could expect no mercy from our critics, whose general reaction would have been, what else can you expect of women? Unfortunately, of course, nothing did go wrong, but that's because they were so well organised and careful and well prepared. Was there a hierarchy? Was there a team leader? Um, well, no, that's something you get more in male-led expeditions, I think. Theirs had no hierarchy or leader. Evelyn was the team doctor, but it was her background, but she's also the treasurer. Betty Stark was a speech therapist by training, but she procured their supplies and equipment, got all permits and customs documents. And um, Monica Jackson, who's a housewife, who, um, knew the region. She'd um, lived there and been in previous expeditions, so she dealt with the Sherpas and the translation. So it's a very careful and equal division of labour, but with no leadership per se. You see, if women rule the world, I'm not saying Absolutely. it, sorry, whoops, it just slipped out. Tova, uh, your grandmother said to come back alive and not to block the copybook for other women was her ambition. Was she a pretty fearless person? Yes, generally? you know, she always said nothing ventured, nothing gained. So this sort of just go for it attitude and that she would always give that advice, whether it was like a job, you were going to apply for or just anything no one ever told her she couldn't do something in her mind I think she just did whatever she wanted until something stopped her which really never happened so <laughs> you know I don't know if she was aware of fear in the same way or she just was very good at turning any situation into a positive one so I think she just didn't think about the consequences in some cases did my no uncle used to say if she fell into the Glasgow Clyde, she'd resurface with a salmon in each pocket. And I think that kind of sums up her good fortune in ways. <laughs> it was a pretty significant moment when she embarked on the first all-female expedition to the Himalayas. Did your grandmother talk to you about the challenges of the trip and what made her want to go? 
I think it was something that no one had done before. And at that time in 1955, people were wanting to explore and things were sort of opening up. So they just thought, let's just go for it. I do remember particularly on their descent down, she went and did a wee solo sort of trip on the Eastern Ridge, so between Tibet and Nepal, and it was just her and two of the Sherpas. And I know that that was a really enjoyous uh, time. It was just a wee party of them. And by that time, they were really good friends with all the Sherpa people. And um, she was able to summit a unnamed peak there as well herself. And in terms of challenges, I think the main one for her was actually altitude sickness. She really struggled with that. I think by the time they got through the first ice fall, they had to build a tent more or less around her because um, she was feeling so unwell. And at the top camp, she wasn't able to go right to the top because she couldn't eat for three days and things. So I think the physical aspects of it were the big challenges. Yeah, it sounds like it. Altitude sickness is horrible. Um, <laughs> Tim, Tim, can you enlighten us just a little bit on Evelyn's beginnings? So she was born in Kings Park, Glasgow. Her father was a um, Jewish GP and her mother was a nurse, but raised in the Kirk in the Church of Scotland. So a very culturally diverse family style. She had a sister, Margaret, and a brother, Leonard. She was educated at Hutchison's Girls Grammar School. But during the war, of course, like a lot of people, she and the other pupils were evacuated, her case more than once. She learned to shear sheep. She learned to milk cows. And that's between lessons. So I think there's sort of this great sense of adventure coming from those early wartime days where, you know, I suppose there was a degree of sink or swim and she swam. And not only that, I mean, she met her husband through climbing and they shared that passion together, but she continued to be very adventurous and active throughout her life. And Tova, I'm not letting you go until you tell me about her, uh, you know, turning to scuba diving um, in her 70s. <laughs> yeah, there was almost no sport I think she hadn't tried. She would do it all, the scuba diving, the dog sledding. I remember my brother, when we were much younger, he was uh, given this school task to write a story about your grandparents. And I remember him getting into trouble because he said, no, it has to be a real story. You can't just make things up. <laughs> and he had written about this dog sledding in North America and scuba diving in Madagascar. So, you know, yeah, she did it all. <laughs> Is that how you'll remember her as a sort of yes. super superhuman? For, for sure, yeah. All these crazy things. She was eccentric, but in the best way, I would say. <laughs> Tove MacArthur remembering her adventurous grandmother, Evelyn McNichol, who died in April, aged 94. Our small team of obituary writers sit surrounded by countless memoirs and copies of Who's Who. Regular readers will know that Time's obituaries are unsigned. And that's partly because it's the newspaper's official record of a person, and partly because we often work in collaboration on a piece, especially if it's been updated over many years. We all know the story of Rosa Parks, the black woman who, exhausted after a long day at work, refused to give up her seat for a white passenger. Her action sparked the Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama and turned her into a hero of the civil rights movement. But did you know that another black woman, feeling equally as exhausted, did exactly the same thing two years earlier? At the age of 31, housekeeper Martha White became a civil rights hero in Louisiana. When she died in June, age 99, Mariella was joined by Sharon Weston Broom, the mayor of Martha's home city of Baton Rouge, and Carsonia Wise Whitehead, 
Professor of African American Studies at Loyola University, Maryland, and the founder of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace and Social Justice. Hers is the first voice you're about to hear. In 1953, she was coming home on the bus and she said herself, that, that she was tired that day when she got on the bus, tired of cleaning houses, and that she sat down in the only seat that was available, which was in a whites-only section. And when the bus driver and the police officers told her to move when she got up, according to her story and what she said is that she was being ridiculed and laughed at in so many ways by the other Black passengers for complying with the police, so she chose to sit back down. A Black woman actually moved and sat beside her, the Black woman whose name that we don't know, to sit with her in solidarity. But the movement of Martha White, the decision that she made that day, really jump-started the notion of using a pivoted, targeted movement to really strike against a financial empire to get them to change their stance around racial policies. 80% of the funding for the buses came from Black riders. So having Black riders making the decision not to ride, to set up a ride share program, to walk, to catch rides, depend upon one another, really worked an economic boycott, which became the template for the Montgomery bus boycott two years later. If you could, in a nutshell, explain to me the consequences of Martha taking that seat. The, the, the bus drivers amounted to strike. Explain to me what happened. So with this pivoted, targeted struggle, this economic boycott, this rideshare program that was set up, the goal was to get the stance changed, to actually not have Black folks have to pay the same amount of money as white riders and have to ride in the back or stand up. There was a compromise that was made after seven days where they put some of the seats in the front of the bus for white riders. They put a bench in the back of the bus for black riders and they made the seats in the middle for everyone. And that was very controversial at that time because a number of the people that were involved in the movement felt that by allowing the compromise to happen, this is the work that Johnny Jones did, who became a major civil rights activist in Louisiana. This is the work that Reverend T.J. Jemison did, who was a pastor of the Mount Zion First Baptist Church in Baton Rouge. By allowing this compromise to take place, it weakened the long-term impact of the movement. Now, Reverend Jimison actually got on the bus that day. He said he couldn't stop Martha White from being kicked off the bus, but he could stop her from being arrested. Uh, so he did lean in in that way. But this compromise that was made was kind of a sticky compromise because it didn't really address the essential problem. By giving a few seats in the front, a, a row in the back, and then making the seats for everyone did not essentially change the underlying problem about who was allowed to ride and sit on the bus by paying the same amount of money. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Mayor Broom, how much of a local icon was Martha? Is Martha still? Well, indeed, she is still an icon, but um, she was a very gentle giant, if you will, mild-mannered. In <laughs> fact, this uh, past Saturday, I attended her her funeral, and uh, there were many uh, comments made about her life, her legacy from her family and her friends. And Johnny Jones was there, who I think is 102 now. Wow. Uh, so when we think about the civil rights movement, those of us here in Baton Rouge certainly remember the transformative movement that occurred with Martha White. She is still uh, very much considered an inspiration for our community and a, a very integral part of the fabric of our history. 
Why do you think, Professor Whitehead, uh, that her story isn't as famous fellow civil rights uh, hero Rosa Parks? Thank you for that question, because that question gets into the essential debate that's being raged in this country at this moment. Uh, how are we teaching history? Why is it important to help people understand that Black history is American history? That when you collapse Black history teaching down to one month, you have 28 days, and, and they, they cover it in weeks. They do a week on slavery and a week on the Civil Rights Movement. They do a week on what happened, you know, during Vietnam, and they do a week on Barack Obama. Like they collapse, you know, 402, <laughs> three years of history into a month. And by doing that collapsing, by not really embedding Black history as American history into the curriculum, then you just kind of pick out central figures. So you talk about Rosa Parks, but not Claudette Colvin, not Martha White. You talk about Dr. King, but not Ella Baker, not Dorothy I. Hyde. Like it is a collapse, and I think it's to the detriment and the damage to all students not to learn the full complexity of Black history in this country. And is that... Um... Mayor Broom, why celebrating Martha White's life in particular is so important to you and the history of Baton Rouge? Absolutely. Martha White not only shaped, of course, uh, the civil rights movement and inspired our community, but um, certainly she is a part of the, the fabric of our community. Um, you know, ironically, her nephew ended up being the uh, CEO of the same bus company that no way. oh yeah 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 and that is you know when I heard him I knew him uh, but he reiterated that fact um, uh, at the uh, funeral and so uh, we have a lot to be thankful for as we uh, remember and celebrate our history which as the professor said, African-American history is American history. And we will continue to keep her legacy alive, certainly here in Baton Rouge. And I believe that her legacy eventually uh, will be elevated in the annals of American history. Mayor Sharon Weston Broom and Professor Carsonia Wise Whitehead, remembering civil rights hero Martha White. Do you know Addo Campiol? If the name doesn't ring any bells, you'll definitely have tasted his culinary creation. Signor Campiol helped invent tiramisu. He owned a restaurant in the Italian city of Treviso. Together with his wife and head chef, they created the dessert by accident after a lump of mascarpone fell into a bowl of whipped egg and sugar. They added ladyfinger biscuits soaked in coffee to make the dessert we know today. Wife Alba named the creation tiramisu, meaning pick-me-up. According to Francesca Reddy, the founder of the Tiramisu World Cup, the dessert is a cause of great national pride. Tiramisu in Italy is very popular. The, the cake that we used to, to eat uh, uh, during uh, celebrations, during uh, the birthday. So, you know, it, it is always linked to great memories, uh, to incredible moments. And for this reason, it's, uh, it's very popular in Italy. You know, it's like a flag. It's like, you know, in Treviso, moreover, talking about tiramisu in Treviso is like talking about Maradona in Naples. You, you can joke about that. Tiramisu gained cult status after a mention in TriStar Pictures' Sleepless in Seattle, which was written and directed by Nora Ephron. After years out of the dating game, 
Tom Hanks' character Sam turns to his friend for advice on women. The good news is you split the check. I don't think I could let a woman pay for dinner. Great! They'll throw a parade in your honor. You'll be man of the year in Seattle Magazine. Tiramisu. What is tiramisu? You'll find out. What is it? You'll see. Some woman is going to want me to do it to her, and I'm not going to know what it is. You'll love it. Like Sam, people the world over wanted to find out about tiramisu, and it became an international favourite, all thanks to Addo Campiol, who died in October, aged 93. Coming up, more of the fascinating people featured in the Times obituaries during 2021. But first... I'm Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Egyptian author Nawal el-Sadawi wrote over 50 works of fiction and non-fiction, plays and short stories. But above all, she was a tireless campaigner for women's rights. We have to liberate women economically, socially, psychologically, physically, religiously. We called ourselves historical socialist feminists because we studied history and we understood that the oppression of women is not specific of Egypt or Arab people. It is historical. It is everywhere in every country. Feminism was not invented by American women, as many people think. No, feminism embedded in the culture and in the struggle of all women all over the world. Nawal spent time in prison and in exile because of her beliefs. When I heard she died in March, I didn't hesitate to commission an obituary from Martin Fletcher. 
Nawal's grandmother said that a boy was worth 15 girls and branded her a blight. But to Turkish author Elif Shefak, Nawal was an inspiration. Martin and Elif appeared on Times Radio to pay tribute to the woman regarded as the Simone de Beauvoir of the Arab world. She was so important, I think, across the Middle East, but for the entire world. And sometimes people think that women's rights, human rights, freedom of speech are more vital or urgent in some parts of the world, but not so much in others. And that is wrong. I think wherever we look at today, East and West, we realize that women's rights are in danger, minority rights are in danger. So I would describe Nawal al-Saddavi as a creative dissident. That was how she was describing herself, and I like, like it very much. As a very brave voice, champion of uh, women's rights, equal rights. As an amazing author, speaker, intellectual, I would describe her as a public thinker as well. When I look at her life, the way she has been imprisoned, her books were banned, sometimes burned, she lost her job, she received death threats. Um, So there's a lot that she has gone through throughout her life. I think giving voice to people whose voices we never hear was her primary urge. She was an important name for women of my generation and beyond. Martin, tell us more about her early life and, and how it ended up driving her activism. Her feminism began very early. When she was six, she was dragged from her bed in the middle of the night and circumcised, and she cried for her mother, looked up and saw her mother standing, smiling with her aunts and other people witnessing this ceremony. Her grandmother told her that a girl was a blight, Her parents were relatively liberal and they sent her to school. But when she was 10, they tried to marry her off. She resisted and her mother took her side, so she avoided that. The course of her life was really set very, very early on. Um, Elif, one work of Noel that had a particular influence on you was Woman at Point Zero. Can you tell me a little bit about that particular book? Yes, that particular book had a huge impact on me. I read it actually at a young age in Istanbul, in Turkish. It was translated into Turkish. And some listeners might think that's very usual and very common. But actually, across the Middle East, we don't read each other's works as much as we should have. However, her books were translated. And many women, um, I think, were transformed by her writing. So when I discovered women at point zero the story stayed with me this is the the story of a sex worker on death row in a prison she has killed her pimp in self-defense and Nawal al-Saddawi here is the observer is the witness to all the journeys the horrible tragedies and things that this woman has suffered and has gone through in telling her story actually of course she's telling the story of thousands of, you know, countless women who have experienced similar things. She was married three times. She divorced each one of them. And and the last husband, who she was with for quite a long period of time, a couple of decades, I think, she divorced because he was being unfaithful. She seems to have had a very clear um, idea of what was right and what was wrong. Very feisty, very brave, very vocal. And she was also very critical of conventional marriage, you know, the way we understand and practice marriage in traditional patriarchal societies. So, for instance, she would say that the way the marital institution is designed is, in a way, polygamy for men, but always monogamy for women. 
and she was very critical of that. She found that very unfair, very unequal. These things are not easy to talk about in our societies. And she was, you know, given all kinds of names for daring to speak about women's sexuality, pleasure, and daring to question the inequality embedded in the marital institution. She spent um, two decades, I think, abroad, Martin. Um, why was that? She became a threat to the established order. After she was released from prison following Sadat's death, Mubarak took over. And instead of locking her up, he tried to silence her. Her books were censored. She was banned from the national media. Guards were posted outside her house ostensibly to protect her, but she felt they were there to threaten her. And she and her husband decided to leave and they they went to the United States. She taught at Duke University and other universities and stayed away for a long, long period. Then in 2004, she came back and challenged Mubarak in in the presidential campaign. I don't think she thought she could win. It was a, a protest. Thereafter, she remained largely in Egypt, continued to protest right up in 2011. She was protesting in Tahrir Square. She had been 79, 80. Yeah, I'm tireless right up till the end. She never stopped. Uh, Alif, her books were translated into 40 languages and she was honoured around the world, but never really in her native land. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us so much. Um, This is a woman whose voice has been incredibly important for countless women across the world and minorities. But in her own country, sometimes her books were not published. There were people who tried to strip her of her citizenship. And there were also people who accused her of writing negative stories about Egypt, writing negative stories about the Arab world and portraying the land in a negative way in the eyes of Westerners. The moment you criticize, immediately people say, oh, that means you don't love your country. Not at all, because she loves her country, because she cares about her country and the future of her country, she was so critical till the end. Is that something you feel about your own work? Because you too have been critical of your country, but with great love. Yes, it resonates with me because we, storytellers, authors, who talk about the good and the bad, because you care about it, otherwise you wouldn't write about it. And this division, West and East division, runs so deep in the minds of some people. So they're saying, don't talk about it in front of Westerners. Whereas for storytellers, the whole world is one. You know, there's only humankind. Martin, Nawal's anger wasn't just directed at Egypt or Islam or or the Arab world. She was also a harsh critic of Western hypocrisy, wasn't she? Yes. I mean, you know, she was writing in a deeply conservative part of the world. But as you say, she was as critical of the West. She protested in England as well, in Britain. She supported the miners' strike in 1984. She was at Greenham Common. In addition to fighting for women's rights, she was against the militarism of the West against colonialism. She was as um, opposed to women wearing heavy makeup as she was to women wearing the veil because she felt in both instances women were having to cover up their real face. Elif, a tweet posted on her official Twitter account after her death said, I will die and you will die. The important thing is how to live until you die. Do you think that that sums up how she approached her life and work? 
It very much does so. And until the, her very last days, the fact that she was a critical voice, a brave voice, to be honest, the loudest voice in the in the Arab world, and you know, one of the loudest voice uh, beyond defending women's rights and equality till the very end, means so much. Elif Shafak and Martin Fletcher remembering Nawal El Sadawi, who died in March, aged eighty nine. Often it's the readers of the Times who alert us to the deaths of people they feel deserve an obituary in the paper. That was the case in October when actress Maureen Littman got in touch suggesting she write an obit for her friend, Perry Pontac. Here she is talking to Mariella about the playwright she described as a divine, sweet, gentle, adorable man. Well, he didn't write like anybody else, but mostly he parodied Shakespeare and Shaw and Oscar Wilde. And... The first line of the obit is, the iambic pentameter seemed to be the first language of Perry Pontac. You know, he did appear to be a sort of late Victorian, early Edwardian kind of a chap. I mean, he wasn't at all American, although his accent was very American. And you'd have seen him as a character in, in, a, in a film. I first met Perry in 1971, when we were all at the old Vic uh, under Sir Laurence Olivier. He wrote a play called The Old Man's Comforts, and uh, it went on at the open space in Tottenham Court Road with Fenella Fielding. And we had a read-through at the National, and that's where I first met this wispy little chap. We just got on, and, and my late husband, Jack Rosenthal, adored his work. Actors couldn't wait to be in a Perry Pontac play, uh, which included the prequel to, to Hamlet and Prince Lear and uh, Fatal Loins, which was about Romeo and Juliet 20 years on when they had married. I love her not. No longer doth my heart sing sonnets at the altar of her eyes. She is much changed. Hast thou perceived it not? She is a lady, pious as a nun. And vast as a cathedral, holy friar. T'was bearing thy prodigious progeny, sweet gurgling girls and boys of every age that hath enlarged her to her present bounds. Should she not thereby grow the smaller? No. The more she doth produce, the more she is, for both are infinite. Confess, my son, is there another that thou favourest? Truly, I have been tempted, gentle friar. You said that his plays should have been a staple of our theatrical repertoire, a season at the Globe, a curtain raiser at the RSC, a platform at the National. I don't know how you know, somewhere like the Globe has avoided um, doing curtain raises of Perry's plays. He was in the Shakespeare Review, a very, very funny merging of Othello and the importance of being earnest, in which Othello admitted that he'd been born in a military camp uh, and his his mother had given birth to him on a sandbag. And uh, (laughs) Lady Bretton then said, a sandbag? Uh, it was a fantastic laugh when, <laughs> when that came into the theatre. Um, Maureen, very, very... how did he end up here in the UK? I mean, you say he still sounded very American, and, and I think he went to high school in Hollywood. I mean, what brought him here? His leaning was very much towards the left and, and to liberalism. And I think also the Vietnam draft might have been something to do with it. He met his wife, Sandy, who is a barrister now in the 60s, and they were slightly hippie-ish. Uh, and they went to Europe and Perry just fell in love with all things English. 
and his plays are full of references to teacups and lace doilies. He was a divine, sweet, gentle, adorable man. And I mean, to think that he was 83 is beyond me because he still looked like a schoolboy to me. <laughs> um, and to satirise, you know, some of the greats as he did, um, you have to really know English literature very, very well indeed. And that was something I think he developed a passion for very early on in his life. That's so true. He adored Wordsworth. There's one of his plays, which is a writer's workshop with a, a lady called Mrs. Swerdlow. And she's got George Eliot, Goethe, A.A. A. Milne <laughs> in her class and Strindberg. And A.A. Uh, A. Milne absolutely adores Strindberg's Dance of Death. He thinks it's hilarious. All his family just fell about. So you've got to know your people pretty well to be able to parody them uh, as he did in perfect. You would know each author as you heard the parody. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful talent. But but where do you place a talent like that? That's the problem. Well, his early career took off on radio. Um, and I think you worked with him in, in some of those early radio plays. As an actor, what was it for you that stood out about his writing? It, it must have been incredibly good fun to perform, actually. Oh, it, was, it was too much good fun. We all had to really, really rein ourselves in because to do a farce and a classic at the same time, you had to just touch it very lightly. Do you think, that, though, that he was too funny to be taken seriously? Because there is such a thing, isn't there? I mean, I know Alan Bennett described his work as being both skillful and silly, but, but sometimes silly sort of overshadows skillful. I do think people have a problem with comedy. It is second cousin to tragedy. You know, the people who know, know that if you want to break someone's heart, you get a comedian to do it. And we see it over and over again, but actually it's never really believed. And his work was very esoteric, really. It wasn't to everybody's taste. No, it is difficult to put it in a slot. There's no niche for someone like Perry, which is why, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have a little theatre on the South Bank that just ran Perry's plays on a loop and you could just pop in and pop out and get to know his work as you would the work of the people that he loved. For amateur dramatics, of course, it is perfect. You need a, a keen eye and a fine wit uh, to really appreciate the works of Perry Pontek. And just finally, he was a friend of yours as well as a, a long-time colleague. How will you remember him, Maureen? Well, I suppose my next birthday in May is going to be very sad because I won't be getting um, a poem. Can I read you the last one? Yes, got please. Time? Yes. This ancient stage, who could forget where dear Dame Peg would strut and fret, where Gielgud gushed such gorgeous vowels, while Edith Evans shook her jowls, a theatre that can claim to be both root and branch of Beerboom Tree, where Maggie Smith was millament. No more could any audience want save this, our Mo, all wit and grace, assuming now her rightful place. Maureen Lippman reading a poem by her friend Perry Pontac, who died in September. You also heard an extract from a Radio 4 production of his play, Fatal Loins. Before I go, I thought I would leave you with one last poem, in tribute to a great actress. I began this episode saying I would focus on the lives of people you might not have heard of, but I wanted to make one exception. Helen McCrory, the star of Peaky Blinders and Harry Potter, died of cancer in April. 
she was 52. Over her illustrious stage career, Helen played many of the great female roles from Medea to Lady Macbeth. And it is to Shakespeare we turn now, and Helen's reading of Sonnet 55 at the Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival in 2014. Not marble, nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme. But you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time. When wasteful war shall statues overturn and broils root out that work of masonry, nor Mars his sword, nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory. Gainst death and all oblivious enmity shall you pace forth. Your praise shall still find room even in the eyes of all posterity that wear this world out to the ending doom. So, till the judgment that yourself arise, you live in this and dwell in lovers' eyes. The end. We'd like to thank um, the school children who have given us these flowers and we hope we haven't put you off poetry. (laughs) Bye-bye. The late Helen McCrory reading Sonnet 55 by William Shakespeare. Earlier, you heard an extract from a BBC Radio 4 production of Perry Pontac's Fatal Loins. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times obituary special, brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. This episode was presented by my colleague Anna Temkin, the Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times. You can read more from the obituaries team at thetimes.co.uk or in print, including their annual roundup of the famous faces we've lost this year. And you can hear more obituaries like this in the Life and Times feature on Mariella Frostrup's show on Times Radio each afternoon, Monday to Friday at 1.45. The producer was Marilyn Russ, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. See you again soon.